Well, Romans chapter 1, just the first seven verses. Now, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. I want to open with an illustration from Bill Bryson. Some of you may know Bill Bryson uh, writes uh, history of science, but more, more known for uh, writing uh, travelogue literature. And uh, he, in commenting about uh, what it's like to go visit other countries, says, I can't think of anything that excites a greater sense of childlike wonder than to be in a country where you are ignorant of almost everything. Suddenly, you're five years old again. And there's a sense in which that is a a very acute thing to say as he, as a man who loves to travel, but uh, I want us to understand that Paul himself actually doesn't know Rome. Isn't that interesting? We've spent time in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, a a, a city, Thessalonica, which Paul had visited, but uh, we don't have any evidence that would suggest that Paul has ever been uh, to Rome. What we find in terms of the setting of this letter is that he is writing from Corinth at the very end of his third mission. In fact, uh, the writing of this letter can be uh, chronicled in Acts 20 verses 2 through 3. Just two verses uh, where we find that Paul spent three months in the city of Corinth. This letter, in fact is the first mention in the New Testament, New Testament of a church at Rome. We, we just know virtually nothing about Christianity in Rome. Although when Paul closes this letter in chapter 16, uh, he's going to mention several names, 26 names, in fact. And one commentator, uh, looking at the testimony of all of these names that Paul uh, mentions at the close of this letter, uh, this commentator suggests that uh, these names, the way they're arranged and the way the word household shows up, uh, these names to this uh, commentator suggest that there are as many as three separate Gentile congregations in the city of Rome and as many as six separate Jewish congregations. Now, uh, that's a supposition, isn't it? Uh, Act, or Romans chapter 16 doesn't tell us that, but there's evidence to suggest that there isn't simply one church in Rome. There are several small churches. There is a diversity of Christianity in the city of Rome, and yet we don't know from Scripture how these churches, any of these churches, were actually formed There's no evidence that Peter was in Rome before Paul's letter was written. 
There is in this letter no mention of uh, office bearers, uh, official structures within the life of these Roman congregations or a one Roman congregation. One scholar notes that there's uh, no use of this word ecclesia to refer to a church group in the city of Rome. And uh, it would seem as though as Paul is writing, he's writing in such a way that he uh, is saying nothing about uh, the institutional church in Rome, the organizational structures of the church in Rome. One ancient source from the second century suggests that uh, all of the church growth in Rome, as mysterious and unknown as it is, had to have been simply the result of quiet acceptance of faith. No miracles, no uh, official uh, apostolic ministry, just the quiet acceptance of faith. And lo and behold, there is a church at Rome. Uh, Furthermore, there is this. Paul's writing to Rome in likely the winter of AD 57. So, Uh, Do some math as I describe this. Uh, At the latest in which Paul's letter was written was probably AD 57, but there is something that happened in uh, world history that sheds light on these Roman Christians. We know that all Christians were expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius from at AD 49 all the way to AD 54. Five years, Christians were expelled from Rome. But think about this. They were expelled from Rome, and in AD 54, they begin to trickle back. But uh, it may be as, as few as three years after that that Paul writes this letter. So not only is uh, Christianity in Rome mysterious, Christianity in Rome, when Paul is writing this letter, is in a process of rebuilding, reconstructing. They had undergone a great stress in which Christians were uh, exiled from the city. Now, here really all were talking about are various historic clues to inform uh, what is happening among Christians in the city of Rome. But there are Christians there, and we don't know how they were formed, but they're resolute, tenacious Christians. They've undergone uh, political persecution, and here they are back in Rome, uh, rebuilding, evangelizing, growing, and Paul knows about them even though he himself has not been to Rome. Just like in the beginning of uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, your ministry is heard about in Macedonia and Achaia. Right here, Paul's heard about Rome. He's heard about the Christians that are there. One more thing before the first point. Paul is a planner, would seem to be a planner. He's going to mention a couple of times in this very letter uh, what he is doing, what he is planning. Uh, Paul's wrapping up his ministry in the east. Uh, Three uh, missions uh, largely in the east. And so uh, Paul has ventured into Europe, uh, Philippi and Corinth and Athens. But Paul wants to go further west. And so he's going to mention in this letter uh, that he wants to wrap up his ministry in the east. He wants to make his way to the west. And he wants to do so uh, through the city of Rome. He's heard about them, 
and he wants to make Rome his headquarter for uh, a new ministry out west. Now, I want you to understand from all of this so far that I believe that Paul's letter is not a magnum opus. It's not Paul's uh, great literary contribution, theological contribution to the intellectual history of Christianity. It's not a doctrinal uh, treatise. It's it's not a a systematic theology that he's been pondering for years and years and years and been meaning to write. He's in Corinth for three months. And this is a letter that comes out of that three-month period. It's concise, it's clear, it's carefully written. But it's still just a letter of introduction. The reason I want to state it that way is because I don't want us to think that Romans is a letter that is written by an intellectual for intellectuals. Oftentimes that ends up being our study of Romans. It's a, it's a big book. It's a scary book. It's difficult. It's the kind of book that we set aside. But I don't want us to set it aside. I want us to understand that this is Paul writing a letter of introduction to churches whom he's never visited before. Churches who know what it is like to be a Christian and to endure persecution. Uh, Christians who uh, are developing in their sanctification in such a way that Paul, not knowing them, can still call them co-laborers. It's a letter of introduction. You, you, you need to hear what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to relax. As a Presbyterian, I'm asking you to relax. And I'm going to try and relax as well. It's a letter of introduction. And as Paul opens this letter, he's going to tell them three things. He's going to tell them that he knows who he is. He knows who he is. He has a a, a firm understanding of who he is as a Christian. But he also knows what he is for. Paul knows very clearly what he's for in life. And then finally, he's going to say that he knows how life works. All of life works. That may seem a little ambivalent, but let's work up to it. First of all, he knows who he is. Just the first two-thirds of the first verse I want you to keep in mind, I had mentioned Romans chapter 16 before. Uh, Romans chapter 16 is a, is a unique uh, place in Scripture where we have um, a, the largest number of names in the New Testament. 26 individuals in Romans chapter 16 are mentioned. They're, they're ethnically uh, diverse. That's very clear from their names. Uh, we know that some are Jewish, some are Greek, some are Roman. Seven of the named individuals are women, and not only are they named, they're actually given a place of prominence. Uh, only uh, nine of the list uh, have some clear connection to Paul's ministry. That is, of the 26, nine of them seem to be connected to Paul's ministry. Most of them, most of them aren't. Uh, although, uh, 18, it would uh, seem, are people who uh, have some kind of friendship with Paul that is more than mere acquaintanceship, more uh, than just knowing their names. 
Also in Romans chapter 16, we find that some of uh, the members of this church or churches in Rome are wealthy. They're uh, connected uh, individuals. In fact, there is uh, evidence outside of Scripture, uh, historical evidence that, that would suggest that during this time, there were a number of Roman officials who became followers, as one uh, historian puts it, followers of an alien superstition in Rome. And so there may be uh, some uh, political uh, significance to those named in Romans 16. As I said earlier, there's no mention of office bearers. A Phoebe is uh, called a servant, sometimes a deaconess, but it's likely and it doesn't refer to an official title. Paul's way in this list of 26, Paul's way of uniting all of them together is to call them uh, people who are in Christ. Just listen to this. He has all of these diverse people that he is addressing in Romans 16, and he says that they are uh, in Christ or approved in Christ or workers in Christ Jesus or um, converted to Christ, converts to Christ or, or in the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. That's how he's taking this diverse group of individual, individuals and he's, and he's grouping them together. They're all uh, in Christ. Now, that's how he finishes Romans. But here in the very beginning, Paul seems to simply cut to the chase in terms of who he is. At the outset, Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. I can say that a hundred times, and uh, we would look at one another and we would nod, yes, and so am I. But note that this word for servant doesn't show up very often in Romans at all. It doesn't show up beyond chapter 6 for sure. But right at the very beginning, Paul is going to use a word that would be heard by many as noxious, as almost absurd. You wouldn't begin the letter by stating that you are a servant. And then we keep in mind, Paul is addressing a largely unknown audience. He doesn't know them. And what Paul is saying to them is he's saying, whatever you think about me, call me a servant. This is a man who is not striving for the glory of man. He's a servant. A servant is someone whom everyone in the audience would know is owned by someone else. A servant has no identity apart from the identity of the owner. In fact, the station of a servant would mimic the station of the owner of the servant, the employer of the servant. Servants were regularly ranked according to the name of their owner, the household into which they belong. It's a striking statement. Paul, a servant... And he says, furthermore, that he's called to be an apostle. An apostle is a messenger in motion. Someone who has uh, a message that belongs to someone else. Someone who is on a mission because they have been sent out by that someone else to communicate that someone else's mission, message. Plato uses this word hundreds of years earlier, of course. Plato uses this word to describe a naval expedition, carrying with it seals that will be presented to whoever they find on the other side of the ocean, asserting the message of the one who sent it. Wow. 
It's hard to tell if Paul is called to be an apostle at his conversion. We can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Or if this was something that happened before he was even born in the divine plan of God. I tend to think it might be that. And then Paul is going to emphasize this uh, apostolic calling by stating that he has actually been set apart. Now this emphasis seems to me to be saying that the master is thoroughly in control over everything that's happening in Paul's life. Both his apostleship and his being set apart, they're initiated by someone else. And in his letter of introduction, the best way that Paul believes they can understand him is to understand to whom he belongs. Paul, he's a nobody. And you're a nobody. And I'm a nobody. Christ Jesus is a somebody. This is true for you if you profess faith in Jesus. This is true for me. What's the evidence of that? Verse 6 of our passage. Paul says that all Christians are called to belong to. Do you see that? Called to belong to. Uh, This passage is bookended, don't you see? The very bookends of this passage uh, refer to the emphatic statement that we are not a people who own ourselves. Paul knows who he is. Now, this may sound very elementary, but I'm stating it this way because ours is an age of the profoundest self-worship. Ours is an age of the profoundest independence. Our identity is not wrapped up in anyone else. My identity is my identity. My identity is wrapped up in everything that has to do with me. Where does my identity come from? My identity comes from me. That seems to be our age. In a sense, this might require just a a slight uh, recalibration to our hearts as Christians to hear uh, our identity being independent. We need to remind one another that no, our our identity is not independent. But think about this. It's very easy for us, even natural for us, to find our identity and our vocation. We'll act that way. Our vocation makes all the decisions in our lives. But not only that, our identity can be wrapped up in our personal tastes. The things that I like, the things that I dislike, they're a deep part of my identity. Uh, Life goals become identity. Sexual preferences become identity. My own particular vibe, the way I look at life, my outlook on all things, it becomes my identity. And if you doubt this, consider something. Not only can anything be our identity, but nobody can touch it. In fact, listen to this. To say, this is who I am, is a statement by which we intend to destroy every argument otherwise. This is who I am. End of discussion. Well, Christian, that is not the end of discussion. Your identity doesn't come from you. Your identity belongs to Jesus. There's a funny illustration uh, from a Sherlock Holmes story, uh, the short story called The Yellow Face, 
It doesn't happen often, but every now and again, Sherlock Holmes has a situation in which he doesn't uh, quite manage to unravel. And in this uh, short story, uh, Sherlock comes into contact with a case that takes place in Norbury, a, a place, uh, a neighborhood in London. Uh, and he couldn't quite deduce the solution of the crime. Uh, the crime was one in which a husband accuses his wife. And Sherlock does his investigation, but what ultimately happens is that Sherlock guessed wrong. What happened is the wife was leaving the husband sporadically to uh, engage in an act of tremendous mercy to care for an unwanted child, and the husband thinks otherwise. But he learns that his wife is absolutely humble and merciful. He discovers that about her, and she who is afraid of him discovers that about him, that he too is filled with mercy. And Sherlock never figured that out. All the way to the end of the case, Sherlock thinks something beyond this is amiss. Sherlock leans over to Watson and he says, if ever or if it should ever strike you that I'm getting a little overconfident in my powers or giving less pains to a case than it deserves, would you please kindly whisper, Norbury in my ear and I shall be infinitely obliged to you. Well, you hear what Sherlock is asking Watson to do. Whisper Norbury. Remind me who I am. Remind me of that occasion when I didn't figure it out and it was far more beautiful than I ever could have imagined. Christ Jesus is who you belong to. Did you hear that? That wasn't a whisper. Christ Jesus is who you belong to. I think if we were more of a Pentecostal church, I might ask you to lean over to your brothers and sisters uh, next to you and whisper in their ear, you belong to Christ Jesus. That is who you are. Whatever you finish the statement, I am, with, I would like for us to whisper in one another's ear, servant of Christ Jesus. He knows who he is. Do you know who you are? Well, he also knows what he is for. And the latter third of verse 1, all the way to verse 4, Paul is describing uh, what he's for. He says at the end of verse 1 that he's set apart for the gospel of God. His entire life is meant to be spent serving not just any indiscriminate will of his master, but Paul set apart for the gospel. And this word gospel had traffic in the world that uh, Paul lives in. Uh, in the history of Rome, this word gospel would be used as a war message of sorts. Uh, that there would be a report from the, from the boundaries of a battle. Uh, a report either of victory or a report of defeat. Uh, a report of victory uh, would elicit jubilation and adoration among the hearers and a uh, news of defeat would elicit preparation for reinforcement because uh, the enemy is quickly approaching. Now, Paul has a gospel, but it's not merely something that he is reporting. It's a gospel that has made him who he is. And what Paul is saying is that his life has purpose because he serves the message that has made him. Everything about his actions and his speech and his, thought, and his thoughts are bound up in this message of God. Paul, of course, 
He's serving in an official capacity as a missionary. However, the way that he describes his life is such that anyone who belongs to Christ Jesus, anyone who belongs to Jesus, is called a saint in verse 7 and has the same purpose that Paul has, a purpose that serves the gospel. He knows what he's for. And Paul says a couple of things about the gospel. He says that this gospel is entirely trustworthy, and he says that this gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus. The gospel is entirely trustworthy, and the gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus. He says that the gospel is trustworthy when he merely says that the gospel is of God himself at the end of verse 1. But he goes on, doesn't he? He says that the gospel is the fulfillment of a divine promise. The gospel is not a novelty. The gospel is not something that he has fashioned out of his intellect or his experience as a believer. The gospel is a fulfillment of God's own divine promises. He says that the gospel was initially revealed through God's own earthly emissaries, the prophets. Notice how Paul here in verse 2, like he has done in verse 1, admits humility, sets himself under the ministry of prophets in time past. The gospel is trustworthy because it was initially revealed through God's own prophets. And Paul keeps going and he says that uh, God's gospel is trustworthy because it has been revealed in word form. Imagine that. Paul, the intellect that he is, does the equivalent of pointing to a Bible, to the Word of God. The gospel is trustworthy because there's evidence of God's own Word printed on parchment to be held, to be treasured, to be studied. It has been revealed in word form in verse 2. Paul can testify to this in his life, but he can also point to it in the word that we might test the gospel, verify the gospel. The gospel is of God himself. It's trustworthy. But second, he says that the gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus. Paul says that the Christ Jesus that he mentioned in verse 1, he says in verse 3, is God's own son. And he says in verse 4 also that he is God's own son. The notion of the sonship of Jesus doesn't function as a logical syllogism. Here, he's not making a theological thesis. He's just stating the simple fact of Jesus' divinity. He doesn't defend it. He assumes it. He's already said that the gospel is trustworthy. And he knows that the gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus as God's divine son. He says that Jesus was descended from David. And there he uses, to be sure, a word that's not normally used to indicate birth. And it could be that when he says descended from David, he's actually emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. It could be happening there. But Paul's going to combine the human nature of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus together. And in our minds, it might seem strange, but I want you to listen to 2 Timothy 2.8. There, Paul does the same thing. He he, he combines the the earthly nature of Jesus with the resurrection of Jesus as a a, a divine proof of the gospel being a revelation of God's Son. And listen to 2 Timothy 2.8. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And here in the beginning of Romans, Paul reverses those two, but he pairs them together. The the gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus because of Jesus' human nature. When Paul says, according to the flesh, he is really arguing for Jesus' full humanity. But he also associates him with David so that Jesus is not just any ordinary human. That Jesus is divine and fully human, but he's the very one who fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament. That's the connection with David. The gospel is centered on the revelation of Jesus also because of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says that Jesus was declared God's divine son by his resurrection. And that word, a declaration, it could be uh, appointed, uh, uh, fixed. The resurrection of Jesus was a unique event ordained or appointed or fixed by the powerful will of God to bring about the grounds of the gospel. In the resurrection, God's will is revealed. It's important to understand what Paul is saying here. The gospel is to be sure trustworthy, but the gospel is centered on the revelation of God's will in the life and ministry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Michael Horton describes the gospel uh, as a news event, and it's right that we should do that, and I find that we, we miss this. The gospel is a news event, and it's a news event rightly understood. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is trustworthy because it flows from the will of God, but the gospel is about Jesus. It's him who the gospel concerns. The gospel isn't a a mission that I can change, that I can twist, that I can uh, redirect. Uh, The the gospel is not merely a story. We say that so often, the gospel is a story. It is a true story, it is a divine story, it is a story unlike any other story in the world. I think sometimes when we call the gospel a story. We're giving ourselves an excuse to treat the gospel subjectively rather than objectively. The gospel's beyond us. It's news. It's it's the will of God made known to us. How? In Jesus Christ. And it's trustworthy. And so you see, Paul understands his purpose. I dare say that we ought to be very careful against elevating Paul too high because Paul elevates Jesus far higher and so too are we the gospel doesn't belong to us it's God's very will revealed in his very person Jesus Christ God has told Paul what his purpose is to serve a message that is not his own and that should humble all of us Let me say this before I move on to the third point. Because the gospel is uh, an objectively known reality, we should be very cautious about our vision as a congregation. We should be very cautious about uh, the things that we call our life's work. I serve the gospel in this way. Uh, Our church serves the gospel in this way. Here's why I think we should be very careful. We are servants of Christ Jesus. And he can do with us as he sees fit. 
And what that means is that, that, that the, the expression of our purpose that we hold in our hands, that we value, it, it ought to be held carefully because it can be utterly changed by God's word. It can be utterly changed by brothers and sisters admonishing us. You see, the mission that we have, the mission that we love, the vision uh, that we pursue together as a church, it's malleable because we are servants of one. It must be malleable as a corporate body, you individually, myself. We serve God's bidding. To say that we serve the gospel, I just find sometimes to be an excuse for doing where, to doing that which my appetite leads me to. Do we serve the gospel? Paul knows his purpose to serve the gospel. And Paul knows how life works in general. Verses five through seven is where Paul closes. Each of these themes we we certainly have to come back to over and over and over again. Such is the nature of an introduction in a letter. But Paul knows how life works. He says that his entire calling is an expression of God's grace. I just said earlier in this sermon that Paul is a planner. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 19 and uh, verse 23, Paul is going to reveal to us that his desire is to uh, go to Rome and then to go elsewhere, to go to Spain. Paul's a planner. But Paul says here in verse 5 that his entire calling is actually an expression of God's own grace. God changed Paul's plans all the time. Paul's life is uh, lived through whom he has received his grace and apostleship. That's what he says in verse 5. Through whom he has received grace and apostleship. Everything that he has comes from God's grace. He's describing his official calling, but not in exclusion to every Christian calling. Brother and sister, you function according to God's grace. Uh, The evidence for this is partly here. Uh, Paul says that God's grace has made him a man who proclaims the offer of the gospel. Yes, Paul is a proclaimer of the gospel, but it is God's grace that has made him that proclaimer of the gospel. Paul says that he is a man who is called to, uh, offer, uh, to uh, offer to others the uh, uh, option of bringing about the obedience of faith, he says there, to, to bring about the obedience of faith. The Protestant reformers were united in understanding that it's a statement of proclaiming the gospel, that it would be received with a faith that is sincere. And this is Paul's calling. Paul's calling is to uh, offer the gospel. But Paul says even that offer of the gospel, which is objectively true apart from himself, that offering of the gospel is God's grace to him. You see, he he gets how life works. This is our calling as well. Paul says that he proclaims the name of Jesus among the nations in verse 5. And he says that this includes even you, Romans. Paul is called to proclaim the name of Jesus among the nations. It's true of you, Romans. But Paul didn't convert them. Paul wasn't a part of the evangelism in Rome. It happened by someone else. Someone else receiving the grace of God, proclaiming the objective truth of the gospel. Someone else did that. Maybe you did that, or I did that. All of us are called to proclaim the gospel, but in that proclamation, it's a reception of God's grace. 
See, Paul knows that life works by understanding who he is as a servant of Jesus Christ, by understanding what the gospel is, a message that is trustworthy and objectively true and centered on Jesus Christ. And Paul knows how life works because he is a man who expects God's grace each and every day. Life is complex, to be sure. It just is. And I don't mean to, to, to crystallize life in such a way that here it's very simple. Now just uh, now go out there and live life to the glory of God and the gospel of grace. But I do, I, I do want us to hear that Paul understands who he is as a, as a person. He gets personhood. And I'm not sure that we get personhood. We fight for self, but should we? We're mere servants. We belong to someone else. Do we understand personhood? Do, do we understand that the gospel belongs to God? It is his very will in the world. In time and space, God is working right now. In your failure, in your sin, in your uncertainty, in your helplessness, in your fear? Do you think that those things will stop the gospel? It's the work of God. It is his work. You see, we have an opportunity to look at our failure, to acknowledge it, and to praise God for our weakness. Paul is serving a gospel that doesn't depend upon him. And if there was anyone through whom the gospel ought to depend, it would be someone like Paul, wouldn't it? But it doesn't depend upon him. You see, he knows who he is, and he knows what the gospel is. And he expects grace from God each and every day in hardship, in success, in acknowledgement of sin, which we're going to hear from him in chapter 7. He knows that he needs God's grace each and every day. Now that's the overriding message of the gospel that I want us to hear over and over again as we spend time in Romans. I want us to listen carefully to Paul describe with clarity how to live lives filled with grace because we have received the grace of God in the gospel. My brothers and sisters, over uh, the next year and a half, two years, I want us to hear over and over again who we are, our purpose in life, and that we need God's grace each and every day. Well, welcome then to the book of Romans. Let's pray together and confess faith. Our Father, we do thank you that you have kept our hands away from manipulating that which we most certainly would overturn. We love ourselves. We love channeling all things with ulterior motives to serve self. And we even love day-to-day self-sufficiency. Would you discipline us gently? 
that we would know that we belong to Christ Jesus to serve an unchanging, trustworthy gospel and to be recipients of your grace moment by moment. In our precious Lord's name, amen.